And for those of you who remain, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 21. As you're turning there, uh, just to give you an idea of where we are headed, this, this is the end of our series on We Are His. Uh, and yet it's not the end. We're going to start a little Advent series next Sunday and look at how some of these gospel principles played themselves out in the family of Christ our Lord and what that means for us. But this is sort of the, the first end to this series. And so uh, I don't look to say a whole lot new uh, this morning, but my attempt is to review uh, what we've covered. And I'm indebted to Paul Tripp. Uh, you see this in your bulletin, all these resources that we've used throughout the, the series. But his last chapter on his book on marriage is a chapter on worship. And, well, I'm indebted to Paul Tripp for this, this sermon. Um, but we are going to be looking at this theme of worship and what it means in our relationships and how the fact that we are His and that we are to worship Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, how that equips us uh, to work towards health and redemption and grace and mercy and wholeness in our all our relationships. Let's pray, or let's read the scriptures, and then we'll pray uh, that the Lord will guide us. Revelation chapter 21. This is God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
It had a great high wall with twelve gates. And at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, give us wisdom to know and understand how glorious you are in your person and in your works. And how gracious you are to devote those works to making your people your very own glorious possession. Teach us what it means for us to live out of this reality that we are your people and you are our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, not too long ago, although now that I think about it, it was a long time ago. Back when I was in South Carolina doing campus ministry, I started developing this pain all on the, the left side of my body, and it went all the way down to my fingertips, which if any of you have any background in medicine or if you've Googled WebMD at all, you know, that's maybe not a good thing. That could be a heart attack just in process. And so I went to my doctor and he scheduled me for a stress test and, a, and a, the whole scan. And, you know, I just spent basically all day in the cardiologist office doing walking the treadmill and doing the scans. And, and at the end of the day, he's like, there's nothing wrong with your heart. Turns out there's this muscle that connects the back of your, your skull to your shoulder blade. And all of my stress goes there. And I had developed a knot at least the size of a golf ball that just affected my whole side of my body. I couldn't turn my neck. It just made my fingers tingle. And the physical therapist just told me, you know, Hey, here's some exercises you can do. And, and, and it, and it's better. And whenever I feel it coming on again, I know, Oh, I should do these stresses, stress exercise. But, but it was just, it was both a relief and a scary thing to find out that it was not a heart problem. It was a stress problem. When we have problems in our relationships, often we go to those those quick and easy diagnoses. Oh, this is a communication problem. Oh, this is, this is a, a, a problem with, with the fact that we're just not united in where we're heading. This is a, an attraction problem. We don't have the same desires anymore. They're just going this way. It's a listening problem. We, we, we try to diagnose what the problem is. And what Scripture teaches again and again and again, as real and as important as some of these issues are, there is a more fundamental problem. Your problem in your relationships aren't just a problem of technique. It's not that you need to communicate better. It's not just that you need to uh, talk better. It's not just that you need to, to think alike more. Your problems in your relationships, in your marriages, with your children, with your parents, with your roommates, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, it's not fundamentally a problem of technique. It's a problem of worship. And what 
this passage in Revelation reveals to us is it gives us a glimpse of what life is going to be like when worship is set right, when we're set free from the the hindrances and the distractions of this world, when we are set free from the entanglements of sin, when we are set free to worship God as he deserves without any encumbrance, without any hindrance. But what's even more amazing about this passage is that in Christ, who is right now seated at the right hand of God in all glory, receiving all honor, we are invited in him to step into that worship now. To not wait until the last day when all things are set right and the Lord returns. But we have in Christ an opportunity in the power of the Spirit to step into that worship. To grow in that right worship now. And that right worship. As we grow in it. As we learn what it looks like. It will absolutely have a transformative effect On all of our relationships. Because the fundamental problem of our relationships is not one of technique. But is one of worship. And so what I have for you this morning is a list of, just go with me on this, eight things that I will go through very quickly. But eight things that just give you a glimpse of what it looks like to step into that life of worship. And none of these things are new. These are the same things we've talked about for this entire series. And so I'm just going to run through them by way of reminder that we might be sent forth from this place with a a renewed vision and desire to grow in the right worship of God. So what can we say that this life of worship looks like? A life of worship that Christ invites us into right now is lived with purpose. We like to force things to conform to our plans and our purposes. And all too often when our relationships go awry, it's when people aren't doing what we want them to do to meet our expectations and fulfill our purposes and plans for us and for them. Think about the disobedient child who is keeping you up past your bedtime or keeping you from watching that show that you wanted to catch up on. Like, I had a plan for today and you were getting in the way of it. And it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. But what we find here in this passage is a reminder that a life of worship is lived not according to our purpose. Because the the great God of all, the one true God, our God... He is making all things new. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And he is carrying it out to the very end to fulfill all of his glorious purposes for the whole cosmos. He is making all things new. Especially his bride. Did you see the description of his bride, the holy city Jerusalem, who is coming down out of heaven from God, radiating with his glory? He's making all things new. 
but he's starting with us. To form and shape us more and more into his likeness, into his image, that we might share his glorious purposes and plans. And so when we step into right worship of the living God, the one true God, our God, it dismantles our tendency to build our own kingdoms and to force all of our relationships to conform to our plans. It frees us to live for His plans and His purposes in all of our relationships. When when there is conflict and dysfunction in, in, in any relationship that you have, are you able, because of your worship of the living God, to pause and to look into that and ask the question, What is God doing here? And how would he use me to make this new and glorious? The right worship of God frees us from our own selfish kingdom building to live for God's purposes in our relationships. A life of worship is lived with thankfulness. When things do go awry in our relationships, our tendency isn't to be so happy about that, but we grumble and complain and we start to find fault and we judge and we like, this is what went wrong and it wasn't my fault. It was definitely your fault. Even if it was a little bit my fault, it was more your fault. And we just complain and grumble and we let our hearts be consumed with bitterness. But what this passage shows us Is it at the end of days when everything is set right, when the one true judge has issued all of his his judgments and he has brought righteousness and holiness to bear in all of creation, we will be able to say, he has done it. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And all that is good He has brought it about. There is no other source of good in the cosmos but Him. And every good and perfect gift comes from our God. And when our relationships run awry, when they become dysfunctional and unhealthy, when we are tempted to grumble and complain, it's because we've started to think that we are the source of good and nobody else really appreciates that. But a life that steps in to to this right worship of our one true God, it steps into that worship with the humility that looks to Him and Him alone for every good thing. It is a life that is lived with thanksgiving. When, When there is any blessing for us to receive, it is from Him. And we are able in Him to give thanks. To give thanks when God does wondrous things for us. To give thanks when God does wondrous things for others. In bitterness, we are tempted, perhaps, to begrudge people the blessings of God. Well, they didn't deserve that. And yet, neither did we. Are you so full of thankfulness? to your God for what He has done in you and through you and in others and through others, that you are able to worship 
and to give thanks when you see his good work taking place in others. To not be full of envy, to not be full of judgment, but to be reminded how thankful we ought to be that God is working. And there is coming a day where he will say, it is done. A life of worship is lived with eternity in view. One of the reasons there is so much dysfunction in our relationships is because we shrink everything down to our own wants and needs, to our feelings, to our moment. And we lose sight of the bigger picture. In this passage, what what we are reminded of is that God is making all things new. Now, be good Presbyterians for a minute and just help me out. Which things are God, is God making new? What, but which things are those? All the things. The entire cosmos. Heaven is going to be made new. Earth is going to be made new. All of the stars are going to be made new. Everything is going to be made new. Especially you. His church is going to be made new to become this holy city, this glorious bride. Because God is reconciling all things to himself. And when we step into that that right worship of God, it is a reminder of how big he really is. Of how glorious and unsearchable his plans and purposes are. And so often when we grow bitter, when we start to complain, when we see things go awry, our view has become so narrow that for us, We start to maybe question God's goodness to us. Why would God do this to me? Or we start to doubt God's existence. How could a God allow this to happen? Or we just lose hope altogether that God is paying attention to us. But God's plans and purposes are so big and so grand that when we shrink our view down to just our moment, to ourselves, to our wants, to our feelings, we lose sight that everything, all things are going to be reconciled to God in Christ, especially his people. Do you have a tendency to limit God's work in you? To be enslaved to those patterns and habits? Do you have a tendency to limit God's work through you in the lives of others? You have a tendency to limit God's work in and through those around you. Growing bitter or discontent because they aren't being sanctified according to your schedule. Yet God is so grand and is so big and is so glorious. He's working in all of his people. And there will come a day where he will say it is done. And they will be 
together with all of God's people. A holy city radiating with the glory of Christ himself. Our God is that big. Do we live with eternity in view? Not just judging people in the moment. A life of worship is lived with faith. How easy it is for us to slip into living life, going through the motions, going to work, doing the job, doing the job well, and, and, and not accounting for God to be at work around us. We, we, there's no awareness of God's work around us. We just get caught up in the day today. We celebrate Thanksgiving. And how easy is it to get wrapped up in getting all the food right that we have no energy left to overflow with thankfulness to God because we have lost complete awareness of him and his work in this world. But a life of worship is lived by faith. That he is our God and we are his people. And that all that transpires, God is working to make that more and more meaningful and real and significant in our lives. That our highest joy would become the reality that he is our God and we are his people. Take everything else from me, but leave me that. You notice this list of those who do not inherit the kingdom of God. The cowardly, the faithless, detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. These are those, if you want a a thread of commonality that, that holds these together, these are those who have rejected God, who have not lived by faith in Him, who have lived in their own strength, like the sorcerers conforming and controlling the world around them according to their own power and wisdom, or they've given into their own desires, or they've given into their own plans and purposes, no matter what it means for those around them. And they have rejected the one true God as God, as their God. And there is no place in the new heavens and new earth for those who do not call themselves by the name of God, who rejoice in the fact that we are his people. That's what worship is. It's rejoicing in in who he is and the, the reality that we belong to him. And if heaven is a place, if the new heavens and new earth are a place where worship is restored, there is no place for those who have rejected God. It's a warning for us. It's not just a warning for the pagan. It's a warning for us that we not live this life without an awareness of who he is. That we not become functional atheists. That we not live as if our desires and our purposes and our plans are the most important. But that we live as those who are his people. We call on him as our God. We live by faith. A life of worship is lived by grace. All too often when our relationships go awry, when they become dysfunctional and unhealthy, it's because those around us haven't lived up to our expectations. They haven't met our needs. 
maybe through our sin or their sin. And we're tempted to respond to that failure to live up to our expectations. We're tempted to respond to others' failure to meet our needs in kind. And to treat them the way they've treated us, to be overflowing with anger or bitterness or rage or rejection or judgment. We find that the God, the one true God, our God, when everything is said and done, when it is all completed, he reveals himself to be a God who overflows with grace to those who don't deserve it. He helps those who are unable to help themselves. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is a God who opens the the gates of heaven. There are three gates on each side of the city. Like, there are no queues. You don't have to stand in line and wait for you to... Like, the gates are open. The invitation is there. The access is, is free and clear in Christ. And it requires no payment. And if you are hungering and thirsting to know this God... He reveals himself to you and welcomes you in and gives you water from the spring of eternal life and you owe him nothing. He has done it. He overflows with grace and kindness. He came to seek and save the lost. He gave sight to the blind. He bore the sins of the people in his body. He rose from the dead that we might have Freedom from death and newness of life. This is who our God is. And when we step into right worship, we become more and more like him. That's what worship does. You become more and more like whatever it is you worship. And if we worship the one true God, our God, we become more and more like him, more gracious So that we are able to live and relate to others, not looking for what they give to us and how they can meet our needs and how they can live up to our expectations. But we live and enter into relationships looking to give, to love sacrificially, to offer what they need. Because we have become more like our God who has given us everything that we need. A life of worship is lived with perspective. All too often we find our identity or our significance or our meaning or our purpose in in things that cannot hold the weight of that. We think that if I can just accomplish these great things in my own strength, if I can just raise my children to accomplish these great things in my own strength. If I, like, we, we find our meaning and our significance and our identity in earthly things. And it, without fail, sorrows come. Children disobey. Parents grow weak and ill. Jobs get lost or downsized. Friends move away. 
people betray us. And the longer we live, the more we pile up reasons to shed more and more tears. The Apostle Paul once wrote that I don't consider any of our present sufferings worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. And here, in verse 4, we are reminded that no matter what we endure in this life, no matter what sorrows, no matter what tears we shed, He Himself, our God, will wipe them all away. And He will take away mourning and crying and pain and even death. And it's a reminder to us that this is not all there is. And whatever hardship and trial and tribulation that we go through, whatever failures we experience because of our own weakness or the weakness of others, it's not all there is. He is wiping away all sadness and even taking death away from us. And when we step into the right worship of our God, it frees us to find our identity, to find our purpose, to find our significance and our meaning in Him. Consider for a moment that the God of the universe, who is so big, He is reconciling which things to Himself? All things, he himself will stoop to wipe your tears from your eyes. He is not too big to be known by you. And you are not so small that he loses sight of you. And he has a plan and a purpose for you, and there is no sorrow, there is no trial, there is no tribulation that you will endure that can possibly compare to the glory that will be revealed in the children of God. So that right worship frees us to endure because whatever it is we endure, we have a different perspective on it. We grieve as those who have hope. A life of worship is lived with joy. All too often when there is dysfunction in our relationships, it affects everything, right? It's, it's, not, it's not just that I, I'm sad or frustrated in this one particular moment when I'm around this person. It affects everything. The reason I had developed this golf ball-sized knot in a muscle was because the Campus Ministers Association was dealing with essentially a cult leader who had worked his way onto campus and ingratiated himself to the community, and I was the focus of all of his ire. Like It affected my whole life, my my physical being, my relationships, my sleep. what this passage reminds us of is that no matter what, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. The God who made us wants to enjoy fellowship with us. And he is working all of these plans and purposes. The focal point of them is his people, his bride. That they would be his. That we would be his. And the glory of the gospel is that we don't have to wait until the new heavens and new earth to enjoy that intimate fellowship. He sends his spirit to dwell with us now. That frees us to live life with a joy that cannot be tarnished or tainted or taken away by mere trials. It allows us to have an an infinite well of encouragement to share with others. It enables and equips us to invite others into that joy as well. Look at who our God is. A life of worship is lived with courage. Look, life is hard. None of the gospel principles are complicated. They're just hard. It's hard to be gracious when no one around you is being gracious to you. It's hard to endure suffering when it seems like it will never end. It is immensely soul-crushing to receive arrows from those you once called your friends. But all too often when faced with the difficulty and hardship of life, we cower in fear. We run. We withdraw. We numb ourselves to it with food or drink. We hide from it in hobbies or other activities. We, we, we are afraid to face the hardship and difficulty of life. But when we realize who our God is, what he has in store for his people, what he is at work to bring about, can live with courage. To the one who conquers, he tells us, you will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. <laughs> when these, these trials come like some playground bully, <laughs> We don't have to say, well, my brother can beat up your brother. We're like, my dad, my heavenly father, (laughs) he can handle you. When we worship God as he is, according to what he is doing, it, it lets us fear God with reverence and awe and not fear man and not fear the world, and not fear trial and tribulation. But we can step into the hard places. We can step into the difficult relationships with the joy and the grace and the thanksgiving of Christ because we have faith 
that He is bringing about something of eternal glory. Look, uh, Tracy and I were getting ready to start a bathroom renovation of the master bathroom. We're not going to do it. We're getting somebody else to do it. Otherwise, it would be like six years long. And here's the thing about building projects. They are so inconvenient. I mean, I'm just dreading it. Really nice to have it. I'm dreading it. And they take a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort. And yet when we get on the other side, I've yet like, it's always like, wow, this was so worth it. It's so much better than it was. Did, did you catch the description of the new Jerusalem? God's building project that he's investing a whole lot of time and a whole lot of work and a whole lot of resources into right now. Gates of pearl. Foundations upon foundations upon foundations that we find out later are made of exquisite crystal and jewels. This glorious city, God's people. It's the focus of his attention. It's the focus of his work. It's the focus of all of his resources. And when there is a new heavens and a new earth, it's so that we can enjoy it together with him. And it could be said, it's for us. And if God is at work to bring that glorious purpose to pass, to to knit us together as his people, to take away every trace of sin, to mold and shape us into his likeness and his image, to make it true of each and every one of us that we are his people and he is our God, that ought to change and transform everything about us. Our purpose. What we give thanks for. Our our. our long-term vision, the, what it is we entrust ourselves to from day to day, how we respond to others, how we view our trials and tribulations, and, and what joy ought to characterize our day to day, how that ought to strengthen us to stand fast, even in hard times. This ought to shape everything about us and change how we relate to one another because we together are his people. He is our God. Let's strive to live this life of worship together with him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would abound to us with your kindness and grace and work out these gospel principles in us so that we would be salt and light in this world, that we would be Agents of healing and reconciliation and redemption and not destruction and malice and disintegration. Lord, this is a lot for us to ask, but we ask that you would lead us in every station of life to live as your people, as we worship you as our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.